This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, Happy New Year and a warm welcome back to the Radio Times podcast for 2022. I'm Jane Garvey and as ever, I'm joined by the TV critic Rihanna Dillon. We're here to point you in the right direction. There's some brilliant telly, fresh and coming at you in 2022. So much to look forward to and some cracking stuff on this week's first Radio Times podcast of a brand new year. I should say Rihanna isn't with me in the studio because she's not very well, maybe, maybe not, but she's done a lateral flow, so far negative. Rihanna, how are you and Happy New Year? I've taken about four lateral flows. They've all been negative, but I'm waiting on a PCR. But what's good about your job is you're a TV critic and here you have a golden opportunity to watch loads and loads of wonderful telly. Um, So what are we talking about this week? Well, this week, it's a really good week, actually, because after Christmas and New Year, we've had like an influx of some incredible television. We have The Tourist starring Jamie Dornan. We have Stay Close, which is the new Harlan Coben series. And... And we have The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal and starring Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley. What about Old Toast? Don't forget him. Oh, yeah, I had the, the chance to speak to Shazada Teeth, who plays Clem Fandango in the BBC comedy Toast of Tinseltown. So it used to be Toast of London. They're moving over to Hollywood. So here's a little snippet of our chat where I've just asked Shazad what one of the highlights was after filming the first three series. One of them was going to... Ricelip Lido. Have you ever been to Ricelip Lido? It's I have not. A very, it's a very, <laughs> there's just a beach in Ricelip Lido. It's a very weird place. But I was, it was Amanda Donahue and who was playing Toast's wife at the time, and she was in a wedding dress, and we were just making love on the beach, and that was just like a Tuesday 
weird Tuesday afternoon. You know, it's just like one of the those kind of memories. You're like, wait, hold on, this is the lady from Liar Liar. You know, yeah. like, I'm like, what? Oh, to be at Rice Lip Lido on the fifth of January. <laughs> uh, more of that a little bit later. I think there might be some clear blue water between me and Rihanna when it comes to toast. Um, much more seriously, I'll be talking to Kevin Sampson, who is the writer of that astonishing and really important ITV drama Anne. It stars Maxine Peake playing a mother campaigning for justice following her teenage son's tragic death at the Hillsborough disaster. So that's all to come on this week's Radio Times podcast. I suppose we should check in on Christmas. Was yours okay, Rihanna? Because you weren't ill then, No, it was lovely, actually. It was quite quiet and um, intimate and it was my parents. And then um, Mike and I escaped to the West Witterings for a couple of days, which was lovely. Well, I can beat that. I had New Year's Eve at my mum and dad's sheltered housing. And I'll tell you what, we bickered our way from 2021 to 2022 (laughs) very successfully and it was gone one o'clock when I got to bed on um, New Year's morning. Also, I just need to say, freaky weather. It was, I went to the beach in Liverpool, which is possible, by the way, on New Year's Day. It was warmer than it has been on many a summer's morning down there. I just can't really explain it. What a glorious start to the year. Well, it was, as long as you forget about the global warming aspect of it. Yes, it was an absolutely <laughs> glorious start to the year. OK, let's go on. I was going to say, and how are you feeling? Are you better? I am so lucky because I got, I think it was Omicron, but I got it after two jabs and my booster and I got COVID light. So I suffered a bit for about two days and was treated quite badly by my children who didn't seem to appreciate that it was payback time. But other than that, I don't have any, I've been so lucky, no after effects, nothing. My goodness. Initially, an absolute fixation with Marmite. Ooh. It was, I don't know where, I think I've heard other people say this, that COVID makes you crave really high tasty type things including salty foods that's so interesting i craved a ham and marmite sandwich this week which does not bode well for my diagnosis does it I'm afraid it doesn't. So let's move on to the Outback and to a brilliant show, which I think actually we are both loving. This is The Tourist. It's a big, shiny new BBC One drama. It stars Jamie Dornan and all episodes are on the iPlayer. If you haven't seen it, and please, please do watch this. Here's a clip with Jamie as the man. He's got amnesia, you see. And Danielle MacDonald as Helen Chambers, who's a probationary constable. How you going? Hi. Uh, I'm, I'm a probationary constable with the Cooper Springs Police Department. Helen Chambers, here to take a statement. Tell the truth, it's my first proper investigation. <laughs> Although it's not technically my investigation, because most of my experience has been in traffic. <laughs> uh, any road. <laughs> Can I get your name, date of birth and home address? Yeah, um, I have no idea. Huh? I don't remember anything. About, about the accident? About anything. That is Jamie Dornan as the man. Certainly at the start of the show, we don't know what his name is, although we do discover it. I don't think that's a spoiler. Are you enjoying The Tourist as much as me, Rihanna? Oh, my God, I am loving this. I have already binged all six episodes um, because I just had to find out what happened next. And I love that at the end of each episode, it's, there's almost quite a quirky cliffhanger it's left in quite a humorous way each time as well as a tense way it's very good writing there is tension and there is humor and you're right there's maximum quirk in this <laughs> show it's made by the brothers the williams brothers isn't yes, it yes and they did things like baptiste and the missing and liar they've done a lot of big bbc dramas so you chances are you'd have already seen some of their work 
But why is it I'm enjoying this one so much more than the others? Because Baptiste, I'm afraid by the end, had completely bored me. I wasn't interested anymore. It was so pompous at times. Maybe because, you know, this isn't a spin-off. This isn't this kind of, we don't know these characters at all. It feels so self-contained. I don't think there is going to be another series. I hope there isn't. It doesn't feel meandering in any way. No, I have to say, and it doesn't feel indulgent in the way that certainly Baptiste, towards the end, I did sort of follow it through. But honestly, I wasn't that engaged. So I think it's almost, the, it was more in the characters rather than the writing. Um, whereas okay. in this, it feels like it's definitely in the writing. But also Danielle MacDonald, who if you've seen Dumplin' on Netflix, yeah. you will love and adore already. And she is such a sweetheart in this. A little bit naive, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, definitely a constable in the sticks. But She's she's somebody who I always enjoyed spending time with on screen. Not all of the characters. I could have done without a couple of them, to be honest, or at least the amount of time we spend with them. But Danielle MacDonald, any time she was on screen, I was in. I agree. She is my favourite... I was going to say minor character, but she's not really a minor character. She's my favourite character in a TV drama for a long, long time. And I would would definitely watch more of her. Did not like her controlling partner, (gasps) Ethan. Definitely got my eye on him. I haven't finished the series yet. Loads of good acting in this. And I loved the use of music. I just thought it was so inventive and added to the humour as well. What did you think of Jamie Dornan himself? Because he's quite divisive. You know, people loved him in the fall, not so much in Fifty Shades. I wasn't keen on the fall, full stop, partly because I think Jamie himself, I think it was in the Radio Times actually, was asked, you know, how is it, how is it to be, frankly, um, the man who played a psychopath that weirdly, you might say, some people found attractive? Mm-hmm. I think that it's all a bit dodgy, that, isn't it? And it doesn't actually bear very close inspection. Nothing to do with Jamie himself, of course, but but I think that's why I did like him in this and I think we just we have to be honest and say that there are men that a lot of viewers find appealing and um, he is undoubtedly one of them Um, (laughs) (laughs) they um, they do play with that that, don't they they sort of love you know he's this kind of blue-eyed Irish enigmatic stranger and all these older women especially would kind of do anything to help him out and they definitely play on his appeal (laughs) I think Yeah, I think we both know what we're talking about and there'll be lots of women and plenty of men who agree with everything we've said in as dignified a way as possible (laughs) without embarrassing ourselves. Um, What I've realised I do like is drama set in Australia. Yes! I've never never been to Australia and I don't particularly want to go, if I'm honest, (laughs) but I do want to watch stuff about it. Now, do you feel the same? I have been to Australia and I loved it and I love that this is set in Oz because it's you do have all the kind of outback and then these really like small towns where people are they will just help you and also all the Australian turns of phrase I loved because they are so naughty and weird and they just put swear words with inanimate objects that shouldn't really work but somehow does because it's in this glorious Australian accent. I was in really um, when the Danielle MacDonald character Helen Chambers went to a drive through and had something <laughs> called a cheese pocket with her burger and I just thought I don't know what a cheese pocket is but I'd very much like to find out. I wonder if it's possible to find out without going as far as Australia. So it's The Tourist, highly recommended, big thumbs up from us both and you'll find all six episodes on the iPlayer. 
Now, this is very different. It's Anne. It's running now on the ITV hub. It's been on terrestrial television and it will be followed actually by a documentary also on ITV called The Real Anne, Unfinished Business, which is tomorrow, Thursday, the 6th of January at nine o'clock. Uh, the Anne in question is Anne Williams, who campaigned to get justice for her teenage son, Kevin, who died at the Hillsborough disaster back in 1989. Now, I talked to the writer of this drama, Kevin Sampson, who went to the semi-final as a fan and also went on to talk to Anne for his book Hillsborough Voices. We'll hear a clip of the drama first and then the interview with Kevin Sampson. I'm begging you. Kevin. No. Now come on. Up off the floor. Kevin, what are you doing? Laughing boy here. Still going on about the match tomorrow. I wouldn't be mad than you like this if it was any other match but it's the semi-final at the FA Cup. Kevin, how many times do you have to be told? You're too young. You know we don't want you going to away games. Fine. I'll just stay here and listen to it on the radio. Well, everyone else I know is at the game. You too. You're just not fair. This is a, a project dear to your heart, obviously, because you were at Hillsborough. You must have been very young. Can you tell me a bit about what your experience was? In the, the early 80s, going, I used to go home and away to watch Liverpool. Yeah. And... It was in many respects the greatest time of my life. That was, you know, that was an unbelievable team. And it was a joy following them all over the, the, the country and all over Europe. And, and there was a sense of pride that came with us. We headed across the Pennines to to Hillsborough. Now, I'd, I'd um, not long been at university at, Hill, at Sheffield. So, you know, and I'd also been to, to Hillsborough many times myself as a, as a fan. So I knew, you know, I, I knew the lay of the land and that became critical uh, as, as the day went on and we headed off across the park to the game and that was the first indication that something was was just different you know there was a long tailback of people you wouldn't really get get any kind of backup of crowd until you were almost upon the the ground itself and as we got closer and this is by you know about 2 30 so you know a good half hour before kickoff um and the, that, that crush outside the ground was extraordinary. This was like nothing I had ever known before. And this is outside the ground. And at one point, I felt myself, um, my, my feet being picked up off the ground and just being moved closer and closer towards this. this. Some of the turnstiles were for the Leopards Lane. The Constantina Gates, as a, you know, as we knew at the time, as the, the nation now knows, were ordered to be opened by, by the police on the day. And we made our way into the Leppins Lane end with everybody else. And this is where I, I knew the, the, the layout of the ground. I mean, I just see everybody funneling down this, this central tunnel and took the others and said, let's go this way, because I knew that there was a way round to the, you know, to the side pens. A couple of stewards said to us, just climb over, basically climb over and, and sit at the side of the pitch. And we couldn't believe it at this stage. It, it just hadn't entered our heads that there was a major, major crush taking place and that there was, you know, there was severe injury and loss of life. And just, I don't want to interrupt, but in those days, of course, there were, there were no mobiles. So how did you contact people to let them know that you were OK? So at that stage, so it was it was delayed shock for, for us. And, and, you know, we, we sort of thought, you know, because, you know, my mum was, was, was a widow, you know, she'd brought us up for, for a long time on her own. So I went and queued for a phone box. Ian and my brother went and knocked on doors, and that that speaks, you know, to the to the two extremes really of of, of what we'd experienced. The 
the dismissive and pejorative attitude of the police and the, the unquestioning welcome from, from the Sheffield people. In trying to pay tribute to, to that generosity of spirit in writing the drama, I, I have portrayed the moment when Anne had travelled across to Sheffield the following day to, to try and find out what had happened to a little boy. And the car ran out of petrol. Can you, can you believe that? I mean, understandably, it was the last thing that they, they would think of. And Steve tracks back to a farm that they've passed and the farmer, you know, not only is willing to, you know, to siphon fuel from his own vehicle, but he tracks back with him and fills the car up. You, you were a writer and you could have chosen not to write about Hillsborough, perhaps because of your close association with it. But in fact, you've gone the other way and you have written quite a lot about it because you've written Hillsborough Voices as well. Uh, was there ever any, any kind of conflict with you about writing about Hillsborough? Yeah, I mean, for many years I didn't and I, and I chose not to. And I think people deal with, with trauma in, in, in different ways. And my approach has, it's not so much to, you know, I'm not so much in, in denial, but I, I think I am, you know, something of an avoider. And there was... There was a point, I think, when the dam broke um, after Truth Day in 2012, and it was the it was the women more than anything. It was the mums. It was it was the sight of of Anne and Margaret. You know, all the, all the, the the mums on the uh, on the plateau of St George's Hall, and you could see, you know, the in the faces, you know, just what they had been through, what they had had to endure, just to just to find out what happened initially. There, there were so many conflicting stories, so many smears so many half-truths and untruths. These, these people had unbidden, they'd woken up on Sunday the 16th with a completely different job description of something like, like Anne was dedicated to trying to find out the truth. So tell me, when did you first meet and talk properly to Anne? The first time was actually um, very, very early on in the process. So I was friends with a, a band from Liverpool called The Farm and I worked with them. And one of the places that we used to meet and drink is a pub called The Vernon in Dale Street in Liverpool. And Anne by then had um, become firm allies with Sheila Coleman, who at the time had been seconded from the council to, you know, to conduct independent research into what had gone on in the Hillsborough. And Anne Williams became a familiar figure around that area because the, you know, the council buildings, as, as you'll be aware, Jane, are, are right there opposite the Vernon. And she used to carry these ever-growing piles of papers and files and evidence and newspaper cousins that she collected in a quick safe bag. <laughs> and I remember her coming into the Vernon and um, there was a guy there called Pete Naylor who had a, an independent film-making company that made documentaries called Domestic Films. And she was meeting with him to, you know, to, to show him her evidence. So that was the start of it, really. Then um, when the, the idea to do Hillsborough Voices came up, I mean, she was obviously, you know, the, the first person that I thought of, you know, the, the process grew from there. And the idea was that, I mean, Ebury Books, who are, you know, part of the Random House imprint, they have a series called Voices, which is, contemporary history told through the eyes of those who experienced it firsthand. There's the Dunkirk landings, for example, there's the minor strike, there are, you know, there are, there are these big moments in contemporary UK history. And the editor there, Andrew Goodfellow, actually approached me. I'd written something about the experience of seeing, you know, all the, all the women on the, 
the plateau with you know the vigil at St George's Hall on the after Truth Day, just how powerfully the sight of that had hit home to me. And he asked me if I'd be interested in, in expanding upon that and turning it into a you know part of the Voices series. The idea was to speak to as many people as possible who we were there on the day, but who also took up the baton and you know ran with the the campaigns football as it played on the day getting the perspective of a nottingham forest supporter some of the politicians who were involved so it's quite a it's quite a wide canvas and my role in that is that i i edit it and it it was simultaneously one of the most satisfying pieces of work i've ever been involved in but one of the most harrowing as well because what what you were doing essentially is you are inviting people to relive the darkest moments the darkest times of their life sometimes um in a, in a way that was quite distressing there were some people who who i was interviewing where we you know, we had to stop the tape and, and take a walk around the block and sometimes suspend altogether and with anne what became a, a regular occurrence was by by then she was in the very very late stages of her you know the onset of her of her cancer she was living with her brother and her sister-in-law in, in, in Birkdale and I'd be travelling out to interview her. I would get a call from the palliative nurse, sometimes from Anne herself, you know, to say, I'm really, really sorry. Hope we haven't set out yet, but I'm not feeling up to it today. But then, you you know, you'd get home and you'd have to replay those tapes and the whole transcribing process takes place. Well, what's so accessible about Anne is that you follow you follow Hillsborough, which is a big story with, with lots of uh, different aspects, but you follow it through Anne's experience of it. She paid a terrible price, didn't she, actually, in any number of ways. And, and so did other members of her family. That's what that's something that does come across in the in the drama. I always refer to to what happened at Hillsborough as a disaster. Some people call it a tragedy, but I, I, I think, you know, a tragedy is something that's unavoidable. And the, and the tragedy of Anne and the tragedy of all of the families and all of those affected by Hillsborough is that thing of of collateral damage is the thing of of waking up on a certain day with a sense of your your own normality and by the time that day's over that normality is never coming back again and for Anne that was the case in so many ways the after effects of Hillsborough the ongoing effects of Hillsborough destroyed her marriage it challenged her relationship with her other children and it Ultimately, it, it, it destroyed her own health physically, but I, I think in terms of her peace of mind as well. She very, very rarely, you know, was, was able to, to rest peacefully. The thing that ultimately sustained her and drove her on was this burning desire to do justice to her son. Kev, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. My, uh, I was going to say my pleasure, but but it was really nice talking to you, and 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 thanks very much as well for for having me. Kevin Sampson, Liverpool fan, he was at the game in Hillsborough back in 1989 and he is the writer of Anne. Um, Four episodes all now on the ITV Hub and if it's something that perhaps you feel you don't know enough about, then you can watch that documentary, The Real Anne, Unfinished Business, uh, which is tomorrow night, the 6th of January at nine o'clock. And Unfinished Business is uh, the only title really they could give that because that story isn't over and justice has yet to be done in terms of who was responsible for what happened at Hillsborough. Um, I was around at the time, Rihanna, I remember the day very, very vividly. Did you learn something from, from watching 
this drama? Yes, I've read and heard a lot over the years, but that doesn't at all impact the, the devastation and heartbreak that you feel watching. And it, it was utterly riveting. I think it's one of those programmes that you do almost have to gear yourself up for because, you know, I mean, I came away from it with a splitting headache and a swollen face because I've been crying so much because what else can you do in that scenario when you're watching? I think because of Maxine Peake's performance is so... It's so delicate, it's so vulnerable, it's so realistic that you do feel like you are watching a mother losing her child. That You know, the, the sort of, it feels like the acting curtain is gone. I mean, that's her, kind of speaks yeah. to her prowess as, as an actor. But it just, yeah, I, I was still shocked and at the sort of callousness in which this was treated at the time, even though I know how it was treated, just seeing it again. And because they use real footage, real interviews at the time of policemen blaming fans, not taking any responsibility, that brings it all home, just how difficult it would have been for these people to have got any sense of justice back then let alone yeah. 30 years later well i was going to say they'd say they won rightly that they still haven't yeah. actually had had justice but they are still fighting for it which is in itself remarkable i think actually watching maxine peak play the part you do think well who else could have played it it's hard to imagine anyone else doing it and i know that um i think a lot of people hugely admire this performance but also if they didn't know much about ann williams before they are now informed i take your point that it's not an easy watch and there will be some people who just think, oh, I'm, I'm not, I haven't got the stomach for it. But please, if you can, do watch it because you will. And as Kevin said at the end there, actually, the truth of it is this could be any one of us. We don't know what's going to happen to us or to any of our loved ones on any given day. Um, and the truth is most of us wouldn't have the strength that Anne Williams found to try to start the fight for justice. So huge respect to her and to everyone else still involved in the Hillsborough campaign. And uh, I wonder what other people think of this. If you have watched Anne, do tell us what you think of it, podcast at radiotimes.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and at Instagram at Radio Times. So Anne is worth watching, really worth watching. And it's available now on the ITV Hub. Coming up, Rihanna, you will make the case for Toast of Tinseltown. I can't even say it, won't you? Yes, Toast of Tinseltown returns, um, this time to the BBC for a third series, moving away from Channel 4. And I get to speak to Shazad Latif, who I have always had a bit of a crush on, who plays the wonderful Clem Fandango. Yeah, who could almost be a character in The Tourist, but isn't quite. I do love the name, Clem <laughs> Fandango. Uh, first, though, to The Lost Daughter. It's a film available now on Netflix. Let's hear the trailer then, starring Olivia Coleman and Dakota Johnson, among others. You don't have kids? Yes, I have two daughters. Hey! Your mommy's a girl. You're my big girl. <sighs> She's driving me crazy. What were your daughters like when they were little? Can't remember much, actually. I saw you at the beach today. I didn't see you. I saw you. The little girl lost her dog. She wouldn't stop crying. Children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. Quite a line, isn't it? It's a Children are a crushing responsibility. <laughs> Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the Lost Daughter is a film version of a novel by Elena Ferrante, which I haven't read. Have you read that? I haven't read The Lost Daughter. I did read My Brilliant Friend, so I sort of know a bit about Elena Ferrante's writing and I do love it. I think it's excellent writing. It leaves a lot for your imagination to do the work, I think, which is why this film works so well. OK, yeah. Explain why you think it does work so well. It's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who we obviously know as an incredible actress in her own right. And it stars Olivia Colman as Lida, who... So she's on holiday, you can hear there. And she sort of becomes completely obsessed by this American family. And then we see flashbacks of her own family life from when she was young. And her the character of Lida at this point is played by Jessica. Buckley. So it's sort of like the split time narrative, which again is always quite interesting and sometimes doesn't work because you will always naturally be drawn to one more than the other and always be that much disappointed if, you know, Olivia is on screen instead of Jesse or vice versa. But actually, I didn't really find that with this. I think... What was so beautiful about Maggie's direction, Maggie, like she's my best mate. Um, It did sound a little bit that way. (laughs) Only because I interviewed her last week, darling. Um, (laughs) Of course. I can't can't compete, so I've given up trying. Um, She does such a fantastic job of taking us into the world of leader rather than the, um, the actors, I suppose. So... We have all these constant close-ups of her face. We're kind of feeling the emotion all the time. And I think we really need that to link the two timelines. Otherwise, it might feel quite jarring because Jesse Buckley and Olivia Common don't really look anything alike and don't really sound alike. I was going to ask you, yeah, does that matter? Because I ceased to care. Initially, I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And then I just forgot about yes, it. Yes, because of the direction, I think. I think that's exactly it. it doesn't, you don't need to. You can suspend your disbelief because you are so involved in the story and how the actions of what's happening in the, in the younger self are affecting what's happening in the present day. It also, well, it made me wonder about motherhood a lot and about the cost of it, the price you pay. I'm not sure it would encourage, well, I was going to say it wouldn't encourage people to have a family. What I'm really thinking is it wouldn't encourage young women necessarily to have to have children. I, I don't know what you think about that. And also, with I wonder whether a film will ever be made about the price you pay for being a father mm. or or whether you're ever judged for how good a father you are. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I think that film will come and I'm sure there are examples out there, I hope, that we just haven't been privy to yet. It also, on a lighter note, made me realise how much I'd like to go to Greece oh. um, really as soon as possible. <laughs> that was lovely. And I don't care. And flirt whether with I go Paul with... Meskel, right? I mean... Uh, well, who also crops up <laughs> as an Irish student. I have to... Can I be really... But not unfair, I hope. Go on. He is slightly playing the part of, well, he's Paul Mescal again, isn't he? Not that that's ever a bad thing. <laughs> I took my mum to see this and we sort of, we came out and I said, did you ever want to leave me? Oh, <laughs> and? Uh, no, was the resounding response. But that, you know, it does, it's fr- it's a frightening film. It, and also it's, it mm. plays into horror and thriller elements. Although it sounds like a drama, yeah. from the clip we heard there, you can hear, because there's also the family that she becomes obsessed with. You don't know if they're maybe mafia connected. There's something well, dark going on with them. You know, it's about so much that is unsaid, which is very unsettling. I liked it, I think, but I was also slightly unsettled by it. Perhaps I admired it more than liked it. I don't know. 
It's a controversial film. It's a film that people are talking about. You'll definitely want to be in with the in crowd. And that means you should have watched The Lost Daughter on Netflix, starring Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman. OK, um, there is no escape. We must discuss Toast of Tinseltown. Episode two will air on Tuesday, the 11th of January at 10 o'clock on BBC Two. All three series of Toast of London are available to stream exclusively on BBC iPlayer. So, Rihanna, I need to know more about Toast. I confess I'd never heard of it or him. So this started off as Toast of London for two series on Channel 4. And it's basically about a jobbing actor who often does voiceovers. Um, And it's a very surreal kind of series. It's like surreal is the only word really to describe it, I think. Um, It's kind of a series of skits within episodes about toast this guy this actor who is just sort of going about his life and getting into lots of trouble he's incredibly curmudgeonly and angry with the world and that leads to and also you know can be quite can be quite stupid which leads to people laughing at him a lot so I spoke to Shazad Latif who plays Clem Fandango who is a character who basically sits in the booth a bit like our producers are doing right now um, and give direction to toast but so toast of London Set in London, right? Now they've moved to Hollywood, to Tinseltown. I'm here yet again voicing another conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, according to this mirror neck guy, it was his wife. I couldn't give two f***s. How many words is this? Hello, Stephen, this is Clem Fandango. Can you hear me? How many words, Clem Fandango? About 100,000 words. That's a lot of Very angry today. So if you don't know the name Shazad Latif, you will have seen him in things like The Pursuit of Love, which was on recently, where he plays Emily Beecham's husband, Alfred, opposite Lily James. Um, He was also in Star Trek as Ash Tyler, where, oh my goodness, what a series. And he was so lovely in it. Um, (laughs) I first fell in love with him in Spooks years and years ago. He plays this hacker um, called Tariq Masood. So he's kind of been in loads since then, but he's kind of been building up his his TV reputation. And perhaps Toast of London is the the most culty thing that he's done yet. Shazad Latif, thank you so much for joining us at the Radio Times podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Good to be here. It's really, really lovely to speak to you, to meet you. Um, you're here to talk about Toast of Tinseltown, which is a spin-off of Toast of London, finally making a return to our screens after what, like six, seven years? I mean, it first came into my life, yeah, about 2012. That's when I first first auditions, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a long time, yeah. So nearly 10 years Nearly for you, 10 years. It's finally hit in America, yeah. So this is like the first time we've kind of ventured outside of London in Toast. Yeah, they've changed up the name. He's hitting, he's hitting Hollywood. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, he's, he's hitting Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel to return after all those years to the character of Clem Fandango? Well, this is just one of those jobs that whenever it comes about, when I heard about when they said, "Oh, we might be doing," Matt sent me. He just occasionally sends little messages like every year, and right. he just said like, "Oh yeah, by the way, we might be doing." another series and I was like yep and it's just, it's just that it's that kind of thing it's just like yep all right see you there because it's so fun you know it's like it's not really work you sort of just go and have lots of fun and then watch watch Matt do his thing and just see what what Arthur Matthews and, and Matt have come up with there are like because there are so many clips of you just like giggling in the booth and I was like that's that's such an easy gig because even if you corpse in the middle of something that can that's still usable yeah as... not many jobs you're allowed to corpse yeah exactly no, yeah it's yeah, amazing yeah. um so were you surprised when Toast of London became such a cult hit or was it kind of evident from the moment that you began filming that audiences were going to love this 
it's just I suppose you never really know what's like how people are going to react to certain things it's such an out there comedy it's so mm. absurd that you you know that you either usually like those kind of things or or it's not your thing but um yeah when you're doing it, you don't really know first three years it was sort of silent it was you know sort of late night channel four no one really knew about it and then mm-hmm. it sort of just sort of just kicked off it's a really difficult show to describe it's a, <laughs> it's a really hard one to put into a box or you know define with any kind of genre how do you how would you describe it to somebody who is watching it for the first time because it is now all on iPlayer so when I've tried to describe it I'd probably say something like it's a show about an actor he's really weird it's very absurd you might not like it but watch it <laughs> that's probably that's the <laughs> that's what i say but and then they end up loving it so it's like you know you don't want to you don't want to give too much away you just want sort of people to let wash let wash over people and don't, rather than sort of try and label it because i think it's that's true yeah like you're saying it's too hard to describe um how how would you, how do you describe clem, clem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, annoying idiot. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know. I, yeah, me and me and Danny, we're just sort of weird guys in the booth. That's sort of yeah. why, you know, like two weird dudes in the booth, really annoying, wear some crazy stuff and sort of watch Matt and try and make him do weird things. That's sort of what... <laughs> I like to think what. this character is the closest to your, to your personality. <laughs> I think it? you are Clem Fandango. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? A bit, a bit of him, yeah. So tell us what we can expect in the new series then, when the move to Tinseltown. It's basically Matt in Hollywood doing lots of LA stuff, being annoyed by Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Danny get over there. We get out to okay. America. What are some of the best outfits that you've kind of gotten to wear as Clem over the years? I think my favourite one was the one with the little... There was just a T-shirt, but just the nipple showing. That's, that's literally what I've written that's as my favourite <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was so... Because I think we were just about to go and we go, oh, this is a bit boring, it's just a black T-shirt. And then we went, wait, hold on, get those scissors. I think the costume costume lady at the time just cut that one nipple out and we were like, that's it, that's the one. So tell me about working with Matt, with Matt Berry. I mean, he's kind of this eccentric genius. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how does that kind of come through on the day when you're filming with him? I mean, he's a pro, yeah. He's 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 very musical as well. I suppose I've, I always because he does a lot of his own music, and he's just sort of a great improviser, and he sort of flows with things, and then he's also just very generous, and you just it's just a nice working environment. I mean, that's just we just go in and let him do his thing and, and mm. react to it really. What were kind of some of the highlights from the first three series for you, especially looking back? I think one of them was going to. Rice Lip Lido. Have you ever been to Rice Lip Lido? It's I have not. Very, it's a, <laughs> there's just a beach in Rice Lip Lido. It's a very weird place, but it just pops out of nowhere. This random, random beach in Rice Lip. But I was. It was Amanda Donahue and who was playing Toast's wife at the time, and she was in a wedding dress, and we were just making love on the beach, and that was just like a Tuesday weird Tuesday afternoon you know it's just like one of the those kind of memories. You're like, wait, hold on, this is the lady from Liar Liar. You know, yeah. like, you know I'm like, what? Shazad Latif, who plays Clem Fandango in Toast of Tinseltown. And Rihanna, I guess if you were already a fan, you'll love this. And if you're completely baffled and haven't got a clue, uh, you'll stay that way. It's not going to change your mind, no. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think fans are going to be quite delighted that this is back. Yeah, if you love Toast... Your quids in. Episode two of Toast of Tinseltown is on Tuesday, the 11th of January at 10 o'clock on BBC Two. And as Rihanna says, all three series of Toast of London are streaming exclusively on BBC iPlayer, which is something the BBC is clearly 
very proud of. Now, on Netflix, there is yet another Harlan Corbin series. Stay Close is this one. Uh, I watched episode one. So James Nesbitt pops up, uh, not for the first time, playing a slightly disillusioned, world-weary copper. Um, <laughs> and he's, I'm pretty sure, wearing exactly the same short wax jacket that he wore in Bloodlands. What is Stay Close about, Rihanna? It's a thriller about Megan, who is a mum of three, a wife-to-be, seemingly a typical suburban woman who lives in this lovely big house with a huge car, but she is harbouring lots of secrets about her past. Yeah. And Can I just say, no woman on television with secrets ever has a nasty kitchen. And this lady... <laughs> Is no exception. Her it's a kitchen beautiful kitchen. Is enormous. So it is a massive ensemble cast. So Kush Jumbo from The Good Fight and Deadwater Fell. She's been playing Hamlet on stage recently. She stars as Megan. As you say, James Nesbitt, Richard Armitage, also from Spooks. Eddie Izzard is in this. Sarah Parrish, yeah. to name a few. I mean, it kind of goes on and on. If you know Harlan Coben's work, so he's done things like The Innocent, The Stranger, Safe. I think The Stranger was actually with Richard Armitage, so they are re-collaborating. You'll know that he is really into twisty thrillers. These are very much shows for the masses. You know, they're not subtle, they're big budget, they're sprawling. He really knows how to keep an audience guessing. This is, I think, I th when he wrote the book, I think it was set in America. I can't remember yeah, exactly where. I don't get. But this they, is in Blackpool. Shifted. Yeah, this is Black... I mean, no offence... But I also didn't get how Megan could have completely escaped her past, but she stayed in the same place and appeared to have moved about... It's not a big place. She'd moved about six streets away. Well, I guess she'd moved from the inner, <laughs> the sort of grimy end to the very, very posh end, right? Oh, Is that right, far okay. enough? I don't know. But I just feel, with episode one, I'd just been here before, I thought it was odd that James Nesbitt's policeman was working with his ex-wife as his partner. And they got on really well. Well, I mean, would that happen? She's would any police force <laughs> pick... No. A divorced couple as a... It just seemed really ridiculous, Oh, that's the thing. This is no in no way based in reality. But it's just escapism. It's pure and utter escapism. You don't really even need to care hugely about the characters. All you well, want I, to know is what happens next, you know? Okay, yeah. so what's, what's, the, what's the cliffhanger now? Uh, which is something that Harlan Coben does very well. That's the thing that keeps his audiences watching because there is a huge audience for his stuff. OK, I'll, I'll absolutely take your word for it. I suppose I was completely transported by the tourist, but I wasn't prepared to involve myself in this and I'm just not going to watch anymore. Uh, but nevertheless, you've watched all of it. You are heroic, actually, Rihanna, in your pursuit of... <laughs> Because I, mean, I, I truly do believe there should be, never mind um, MBEs, you should get something for putting yourself oh, through this. Speaking of, it has now been announced that my dad has got an OBE for his services to the Indian Memorial. <laughs> services oh. that he does annually. You see? Yeah. My seamless efforts uh, to introduce that into the conversation <laughs> have finally paid off. Well, congratulations to him. Is Thanks. he pleased? He is over the moon, as we all. Very, very proud of him. OK, do you know when his big day is going to be? Actually, and no, is I he going to take you? It depends how many people he's allowed to take with. Who knows? I don't, we don't know anymore. And do I have to buy a hat? Well, I'd definitely like you to, whether you need to buy one or not. <laughs> but if you need a series to binge on while you take down the decorations and hurl your tree into the front path, then I guess this just about does the job. It's Stay Close on Netflix. Lucky old James Nesbitt getting to do his thing again. 
What We Watched is a quiz in which normally Rihanna slightly humiliates me and it's probably unfair, but it is a new year and I've got to have my chance to ask her some questions and I know she's not really up to it, but we're going to do it anyway because I'm that sort of person. And I've invested in a really, really expensive fanfare. Here we go. dad gets when he gets his OVU <laughs> and you'll be there in your hat. That is But fantastic. concentrate now. Here is your first clue. Okay. I'm going to give Rihanna some clues. She has to name the year. Okay. ITV1 aired the first ever live edition of Blind Date, but presenter Cilla Black had a surprise announcement. This is going to be my very, very last series of Blind Date. Oh. Yes, isn't it a shame? I've had great fun for 18 years. 18 years, Oh, my goodness. Silla. Helmed Blind Date. And it was a big, big thing. Audiences at one point were 17 million. Uh, then it dropped to 4 million. But actually, what would ITV give these days for a show like that getting an audience of 4 million? OK, here's uh, another clue. Channel 4 has an interview conducted by the Labour politician Tony Benn with the President of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Mr President, may I ask you some questions? The first question is, does Iraq possess weapons of mass destruction? There is only one truth, and therefore, I tell you, as I have said on many occasions before, that Iraq has no weapons of mass destruction whatsoever. It was also the year that both Chris Martin of Coldplay and Miss Dynamite protested at the Brit Awards against the possible invasion of Iraq. And after a really long delay, BBC Choice was replaced by BBC Three. The opening night, confusingly, is a simulcast on BBC Two. And here's a clip. Yeah, I know. Here's a clip of the first day of broadcasting with Johnny Vaughan hosting. Oh, wow. In just five minutes, I'll be hosting a special live edition of Johnny Vaughan tonight where I'll be talking to Johnny Vegas and the Appleton sisters, which I'm pleased about. I'll also be linking up with Justin Timberlake, time permitting. Later on, we've got specially recorded stand-up from Steve Coogan, uh, celebrity baiting with Dom Jolly, uh, new drama, new comedy, new news, plus a visit from the man who's slicker than the Exxon Valdez, Swiss Tony. Yeah, that's certainly a timepiece there. Um, I love the idea of Justin Timberlake, if they can, but not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. They're, not, right they're not certain. Just a, one more clue for you. The singer Sean Paul, he got five top five entries in the UK chart this year. It was the most of any act in that year, and it included a song called Baby Boy, which was a duet with a member of Destiny's Child called Beyonce, who was just starting her solo career. I know this year, absolutely, absolutely no problem for me because I had a baby in the spring of that year and you tend not to forget. Any idea at all? I think it's got to be around the millennium. So like a... Oh, it's harder harder than I make it sound this, isn't it? So so this was obviously pre-Iraq War, which was 2003. Oh, gosh. Uh, is it 2001? Oh, I feel a bit sorry for you because you're not well. Um, but you were actually right. It's 2003 itself. Oh, it's 2003 itself. Yeah. So close. 
I'm sure if you'd been completely virus free, you'd have done a lot better. But um, you nearly got you nearly got it right anyway. And I'm secretly slightly impressed by that. <laughs> Rihanna, thank you. Hope you feel better soon. Thank you. Contact the podcast, podcast at radiotimes.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Radio Times. And if you want a breakdown of the listings of the programmes we've talked about today, then make sure you look at the episode notes wherever you get your podcasts. Do follow and join us each week. Uh, The Radio Times podcast is produced by... Something else. Yeah, she was well enough to do that bit. For immediate media. Um, I'm sure she'll be better uh, next time. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. And uh, I guess a lot of people actually, Rihanna, will be feeling a bit like you in... It is very much that time. Hope you keep well. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah, and that as well. (laughs) 